You are listening to the Hill City Church Podcast. Our mission is to become and make disciples who walk with God, connect with people, and impact the world. Morning, church. Today, uh, we have arrived at what I anticipate will be the most controversial teaching text of our summer teaching series. So, welcome to church. My name's Josh. I'm the lead pastor here, uh, if today's your first time with us. And, uh, and I say that, you know, all joking aside, just I approach the, the topic we're talking about is uh, women's roles in church leadership today. It's one of the, the main aspects of the teaching text, just to recognize and acknowledge that today's sermon is going to be a little bit different than other weeks. Uh, today is going to be, just honest, a lot more like a seminary lecture. Uh, if you like taking notes, you're going to love today. It's lots of citing of scripture, lots of explaining of the biblical text. Uh, if you are looking for a more inspirational message, last week I preached on prayer. Two weeks ago, I preached on your testimony and how to use your Jesus story to make the gospel known in this world. And if you are brand new with us, I hope that you'll give me another shot (laughs) next week. Okay, here's how it's going to work. A lot of content to cover. Four things we're going to go through. First of all, hermeneutics. Next, ecclesiology. We're going to spend a lot of time in exegesis. And then we'll get to the gospel at the end. Some of you, I've lost you already. Okay. Hermeneutics is a framework for interpreting the Bible. We want to get this right. This is the first. This is the intro, by the way. No catchy intro. Right down to business. I want to show you a chart. I came up with this chart. I did, I've never seen this chart anywhere. But this is the chart. The Bible has teachings in it. Yes. Okay. It should be no surprise to us that the cultural worldview on this continuum is often, not every time, but often more permissive, ethics, beliefs, right, all, all, more permissive than the biblical teaching. We, are we on the same page with that? Yes, the culture is often more permissive on any given, you know, like maybe there's a few exceptions to that rule, but on any given issue, the culture is often more permissive and the Bible, the biblical teaching is more restrictive. Now, there's a few different hermeneutics on, so how do we interpret scripture when it doesn't line up with the world that we live in and the dominant worldview that we live in? The first one is what I would call a progressive hermeneutic. And I'm not using these terms, by the way, with any sort of political... Uh, um, any sort of political attachment to these. So I'm talking about progressive hermeneutic, a progressive way of reading scripture, is essentially to say culture is, has changed in the last 2,000 years, and so our application of scripture needs to change. And there's a good heart behind that, right? It's the word, the word progress, right? If there's progress in culture, there must also be progress in understanding scripture. And there's a good heart behind that. The heart behind that is to make the gospel relevant to the world. I think there's a missional heart behind that, and that's a good heart. But there is a problem at the same time with adopting this kind of worldview. Culture's here, we need to catch up with culture, and the problem is called syncretism. Syncretism is if you depart from the biblical teaching enough, see, this is a continuum, right? If you depart from it enough, eventually what happens is you have a blending of biblical truth and cultural ideology. You end up with almost an unrecognizable faith in Jesus. 
It's a departure from orthodoxy. The Samaritans of Jesus' day were guilty of this. They were notorious for having kind of a pseudo-Jewish religion, a kind of half-Jewish, half-cultural religion. That's the first hermeneutic. The second hermeneutic is almost a reaction against the first, and that would be a conservative hermeneutic, a conservative way of reading scripture. Again, not at all saying anything about uh, politics here, but that essentially is to say, okay, culture has departed from you know, the biblical ethic in one issue or another, so here's what we need to do. We need to hold the line. And so this is almost to, to take scripture and make it more strict than scripture actually is. And you're adding rules upon rules. This is kind of the motto. The Bible says it. I believe it. That settles it. And there's no room for nuance or understand, like really even seeking to understand and interpret the Bible well. It really is just, it's black and white. It, it kind of treats the Bible as simple and easy to understand. Is the Bible always simple and easy to understand? It's not. I have two theology degrees, and it's not for me, okay? Like, this is, like some, there's some areas that are difficult, and so the danger, and again, there's a good heart behind that, isn't there? We want to follow God. We just want to obey. The heart is right. There's a heart posture of we want to just live righteous lives before God. We don't want to be doing anything wrong, but you see the danger is legalism. And the people in Jesus' day that he often, uh, uh, he, he often called out were the Pharisees of Christ's day right, who were notorious. They thought, they knew the Bible well, they knew the Old Testament well, but they were actually adding rules upon rules. They thought they were living it out perfectly, but in fact, they were in error. So what is the proper hermeneutic? Do you want to pick one of those two, or do you want to see a third one? Okay, here's what I would say is the, and this is going to make a whole lot of sense for how I teach the Bible, what we here at Hill City Church believe about the Bible, is to be faithful, okay? You can write that word down. That's why I, I don't want to be known as a progressive Christian or a conservative Christian. I want to be known, well done, good and faithful servant. I want to be faithful. Do you want to be faithful? What it means to be faithful is it means we trust the Bible, we trust it, we believe it, and we also try to obey it as best as we can. We, we, we want to understand scripture. We want to seek uh, to learn about scripture. Uh, Jerry Brashear says it like this. This is a great uh, summary of what I believe a faithful hermeneutic of scripture is. What the Bible prescribes, we must believe and do. So that means when the Bible is really clear about something, you shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. Like those are like pretty, it's very clear. Just do it, okay? Just follow it. What the Bible describes, we should follow as closely as possible. So there, this is like, okay, there are some areas that are a little bit more, less black and white, less crystal clear, but we're going to try to follow those as closely as possible. And when the Bible is silent, we should be spirit-led and wise. And that's a big difference, because some people say, whereas the Bible is silent, just make up your own rules. Well, okay, even if the Bible doesn't specifically address a topic, and we just have to be honest, it doesn't specifically address every single topic that we faced as humans, we should still seek to be as faithful as possible. That's why I think the best biblical hermeneutic is faithfulness. And when we approach this topic of women's roles in the church, in church leadership, the Bible is not silent on it, but neither is the Bible crystal clear. And so we must approach this with humility to try to, to try to understand complicated, you know, there's lots of discussions happening, not just in, in culture, but also in church on this topic right now. And we're going to try to follow the Bible as closely as possible. Does that make sense? Are we on the same page there? 
that's Hill City Church. If you disagree with me on that, you're, you're, you're not gonna disagree with me, not just today, but like on very rarely are you gonna agree with me on how I preach the Bible. Okay, hermeneutics, ecclesiology. This is, okay, that's how we interpret scripture. How does it work at Hill City Church? How does, how does ecclesiology means, you know, it's, it's like how does the church operate? Here's a great underlying principle for ecclesiology. In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. And in all things, charity. This is a quote attributed to many different people, Augustine, but more likely I found that it was uh, coined in the 17th century by a German reformer. It doesn't matter who says it, it's good, okay? This is good. In essentials, unity. I want to be very clear about this. This topic of, uh, of gender roles, either in the household or in the household of God, in the church, is not an essential. And what I mean by that is it's not, doesn't mean it's not important, but what it means is we don't put that on the list of if you disagree with us, you're a heretic. Does that make sense? I preached on heresy a few weeks ago, by the way, and my definition of heresy is does it lead you to a different version of the gospel? Does it fundamentally change the gospel? And there are certain things that do, right? If you disagree on you know, the divinity of Christ, if you don't believe in, uh, in the Bible is trustworthy and true, if you don't believe in the resurrection, like there are certain things that, okay, those are on, that's on our like, Non-negotiables, that's on our essentials list. This is what we would say is a non-essential, and for some people, we just have to acknowledge this is a non-essential that even if we disagree on it, somebody might say, it's big enough deal to me that I don't think I can go to church there anymore. And I just wanna like let you know, I, I get that, I understand that, but I want you to hear this from me and from my heart. For us, it's, it's okay, it's not primary, it's not secondary, it's probably like third in that third category of we can disagree with this and you can still be a part of Hill City. You don't have to leave, okay? If you disagree with my whole sermon today, you don't have to leave our church. But I love that last clause in there, in all things charity. Today, is, it's, it, this is a, a complex issue, but it's actually more than just an issue. This is real people's stories, real people's church hurt. Um, when we talk about women, we're talking about people, right? People in this room. And I'm going to try my absolute best, okay, to preach with a charitable spirit today, recognizing that I do have an interpretation on this text, feel very strongly about it, um, and I believe it. Well, I believe what I'm going to preach today, and yet I'm going to try to preach with nuance and charity in the way that I, that I approach this topic Here's what I ask. Would you be charitable towards me? In emails that you send? Would you, like, genuinely, genuinely, and I just say this. I don't, I'm not trying to, like, get a dozen follow-up meetings after one sermon. I don't, like, for you to tell me that you agree, that you disagree with me, or for you to point out other, like, I've studied, I've prayed, I, I understand there's other viewpoints on this topic, and quite frankly, I, would you just be charitable towards me in how you listen? Because often, here's the reality, as a church leader, here's one of the challenges. I often get accused of saying things that if you were to go back and like, write out the transcript from a sermon, you could not find in my preaching. And so would you, I've been praying for you to have open hearts and, and a charitable heart in how you listen to me. We're already half done. <laughs> Hermeneutics, ecclesiology, I'm just kidding. The exegesis is gonna take a lot. Okay, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 8. Let's jump in. I'm gonna be moving quick today. 
First Timothy 2, verse 8, I desire then that in every place, everyone say every place. It's going to come up later. The men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. This is perfect. I almost included this verse in last week's passage because last week's passage was all about prayer. And this is a perfect transition to Paul's words to men and women. So he specifically is calling out men. It's the Greek word aner. Can you say aner? taught you a different word for, for men last week. It's anthropos. That word anthropos is typically, uh, it would be a gender neutral. Men or women, just humans. Aner is almost always exclusively males, men, okay? So this is a word specifically to men, and yet it is helpful to all of us, to teaching to men about prayer. Men may or may not be more prone to quarreling, but I know that something as a man and just doing ministry and and knowing other men, we typically aren't very good, even if we've had a fight with others, at going to others and saying these two very difficult words, I'm I'm sorry. Is that true of men, typically? Yeah, it's, it's true. And so there's these quarrels, there's these fighting, maybe theological fights, we're not sure exactly. Something that Christians say, which isn't true theologically, is that God always hears your prayers. I'm always very careful when I talk about God listening to our prayers. Uh, In fact, I'll sometimes say, here's a prayer that God will always hear. But God doesn't always hear all people's prayers. If you want to jot down some notes, Isaiah 59, 1 and 2, Psalm 66, verse 18. Theologically speaking, there are these explicit passages that say, my people are praying to me, but guess what? I'm not listening. That's God speaking through the prophet Isaiah, saying that to the, his chosen people, Israel. Because the reality is, something, there are things that hinder your prayers, and one of the things that hinders your prayers is unrepented of sin. You can't approach God and pretend that things are all good with God when, guess what, you've wronged your neighbor. And you're not dealing with that unrepented of sin. Jesus addresses this in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 23 through 24. So if you're offering your gift at the altar, this is the place of public worship, which by the way, that's the context for 1 Timothy 2. It's, it's, it, when you're going to the place of prayer, this is what matters, okay? So this is the context of public worship. Remember that your brother has something against you. So who's the offender? You are, you sinned. You did something wrong against your brother. Leave your gift there before the altar, and go. You've got bloody hands. The animal's already sacrificed. Just leave it. It's an extreme example. Be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. That's Jesus. If you have unrepented of sin, maybe you need to step out and make a phone call before we continue in worship today, right? That's what Jesus is saying. Not just unrepented of sin on your part, but even unforgiveness. Later in the Sermon on the Mount, the only point in the Lord's Prayer, this is a teaching about prayer that Jesus clarifies is the line about forgiveness. Matthew 6, 14 and 15. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Before we go, like, deconstructing our whole theology of conditional salvation and, you know, all that sort of stuff, just recognize that if you're praying the Lord's Prayer, give us this day our daily bread, and then you pray, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors, but you haven't forgiven your debtors, don't go expecting God to forgive you. Does that make sense? That's what Jesus is saying. Here's the point. It's helpful to men. It's it's really helpful for all of us as well. Go to God for forgiveness, not just bread. If you find yourself in your prayer life, 
God, heal me. God, help me. God, provide for me. God, you, you know, help this. But you're never going to God for forgiveness. You got to remember the whole Lord's Prayer. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And then recognize that either unrepented of sin in your life or unforgiveness in your heart is actually hindering your prayer and your worship. That's just verse one. You can tell, I'm, I'm moving fast today, okay. First Timothy two, verse nine. Likewise, everyone say likewise. This corresponds to what we just talked about. It's in the same context. It flows out of the same argumentation. Men in the place of prayer. This is now to women in the place of prayer, okay, in public worship. Likewise, also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. That's not even the most controversial part of our passage today, by the way. This is a word specifically to women. The Greek word is gune, and it's helpful to all of us. The word, by the way, for, for men and women in Greek could be husbands or wives, not just men and women. There's no indication, though, in the text that this is limited to the context of a marriage. This is the place of worship, the public household of God. Two problems with some of the women in Ephesus. Again, this is specifically our, you know, dressing problems, you know, dress attire, costly apparel. Like, there's a problem specifically with women. All of us could learn from this, though, okay? Yes? The first problem is the costliness of, you see the, like, the gold, the pearls, the, and I'm not here to call you, if you have braided hair, by the way, we've got daughters, I don't know how to braid well, but, you know, we braid their hair, and it's like, okay, so there is some, some, some cultural significance to some of these kind of things, but the first problem is it's overly uh, extravagant. People are spending way too much money on their dress, and they're flaunting it likely in the Sunday gathering in the place of worship. That does two things, which tears down the unity of the church. The first one is it draws your own heart towards the idolatry of materialism and consumerism and away from being wholly devoted to God, okay? So that's a whole issue right there, is you're spending all this money on yourself and beauty and things that'll just go bad and they'll actually be out of fashion before the shipping arrives to your house, right? You're doing all that, that's less money mobilized for the sake of ministry. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The second problem with this is the place of worship, the household of God, is, is meant to be a place of deep fellowship with one another. The way that the early church enacted that in Acts chapter 2 is people are actually selling their costly possessions to give to someone who didn't have enough food to eat. And so it, is it fitting, is it proper for someone to sit in a pew wearing an outfit that costs $3,000 or more and the person they're sitting next to doesn't even have enough money for lunch after church? Does that make any sense at all if we're truly gonna have this unity of spirit and fellowship? Do you see that? So there's some problems in like a little overspending on outfits. By the way, it's not just women who deal with this. Just to, to show that, there's an Instagram account called Preachers and Sneakers. Maybe you've heard of this Instagram account. This guy got, you know, Instagram famous. He has a book deal now uh, because he would just screenshot pastors. And I'm not saying this is the right way to do it. I'm not like a fan necessarily of this. Like, don't go screenshotting me and like, you know, slamming me publicly or whatever. But he would just screenshot these celebrity pastors. And all he would do is he would put right next to the pastor a, uh, a screenshot of the sneakers and the re what they retailed for. 
And there is this tendency time and time again that pastors have sneakers that cost like sometimes four or $5,000. And he would be like, is this okay? Is basically his, the whole point of preachers and sneakers. And I would say, according to the Apostle Paul, it is not okay. It's not okay. First Timothy, we'll get to this later on in the summer, First Timothy 6.10. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. And so there's this costliness, there's this materialism, there's this consumerism, but then we can't get around the fact that there also is a second problem with the dress code, and it's the idea of immodesty. It's immodesty, and, and, and this is where we get into like the cultural implications of braided hair in the first century, which it doesn't have that same kind of, you know, it would basically be uh, associated with sexually immoral activity, possibly prostitution, that sort of stuff, right? So there's certain hairstyles that are like signaling certain things culturally, does that make sense? There's maybe other examples that we could give in our modern culture of, of signals that you're giving through uh, how you're expressing yourself to the world, and I recognize Whenever we talk about immodesty, there's been a huge pushback against toxic purity culture. Now, the Bible does teach sexual purity, but there's a difference between that and like toxic purity culture, and, and women specifically have been called. I'm trying to be as nuanced as I can here. Can you tell? And women being like shamed for you know this and publicly brought forth and be like, look at how you know the, she looks and all that sort of stuff. I get it. I was a youth pastor, I understand. And when Jesus talks about lust, look at what he says, Sermon on the Mount. I keep going back to Jesus because you can't argue with Jesus, can you? Matthew 5, 28 through 29. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent needs to go tell that woman to put on a sweatshirt. No, what does he say? <laughs> you got to look at it. Who's bought, like, he puts the ball in the court of the person who is experiencing the lust. Has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. So, just, just I want to acknowledge that, recognize that this conversation about modesty and purity—it's been done poorly in a lot of scenarios. And yet, and yet, that doesn't strike out what Paul says here. If there's a place that you could go that would be the most difficult to sin. Wouldn't you hope that it would be the place of public worship? If you're, if you're a human being, guy or girl, struggling deeply with sexual temptation and immorality, and you've been going to things like celebrate recovery for porn addiction or whatever, and you've been fighting, you've been fighting, and you show up to the place of prayer on a Sunday, and you're surrounded, and you're like, this is the place of worship because of the way that people are dressing has actually become the place of my greatest temptation. Does that make sense? So I want you, like maybe ladies, to hear that. You, just because, you, didn't, you didn't make someone sin. You're not putting sin in the heart of man or anything like that. You don't have to be full of shame. But there, to recognize that there, there are certain ways, we're not gonna like, and I know Christian, like church culture has had like all out wars on yoga pants and all out wars on two piece you know, swims. And we're not gonna do any of that. We're not gonna put a dress code at the door. I don't think our church like struggles with this a ton or anything like that. But just to be mindful, we're brothers and sisters in Christ. I don't want to cause anyone else to sin. I don't want to give an opportunity to the devil to create temptation or create someone to stumble, especially where? Especially here. Not in this house, right? You wear a swimsuit, go to the pool in a swimsuit. You don't need to show up to church in a swimsuit. Does that make sense? Here's the point, focus, the positive, the positive command is to focus on living a beautiful life. That's what Paul says. Focus on living a beautiful life. The reality is, 
those, that outfit, it's gonna go out of date faster than you realize and you spent all this money on it. The jewelry is gonna tarnish, it's gonna fade. Even our own physical bodies, and as much as we put effort into staying in shape or keeping the skin, you know, wrinkles show up, it's just, the thing that will last is this godly character and this beauty. And by the way, if you're married, and you struggle with like dressing in such a way that draws attention to yourself, I would just ask you, you don't, like, why do you need other people other than your spouse looking at you, right? If you're not married, and you're like, well, I'm trying to get a, I'm trying to get a spouse here, you know? <laughs> I would just ask you this question. If you're you know, dressing a certain way to draw attention, what kind of suitors are you attracting to yourself? And I'll just, I'll just say that if you want to attract a godly man or a godly woman, you need to be living a godly life. I, uh, the very first moment that I had the spark of like attraction to my wife was I saw a social media picture of her. You gotta finish the story, okay? It wasn't a swimsuit photo. It wasn't some like selfie in a mirror. It wasn't, it was a picture. I just saw a picture of my wife standing on stage with a microphone worshiping. She has a beautiful voice and she has a beautiful heart of worship. And I was like, okay, okay, okay. That girl can worship. Okay, right? You want to attract a godly spouse? You're single? And I'm just like, you're single? Church is a great place to find a spouse. Focus on living a beautiful life. You will attract godly people. Does that make sense? All right. How, much, how are we doing on time? Not terrible. Not great. 1 Timothy chapter 2, <laughs> verse 11. All right, here's, here's, here's the big passage here. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived when, when, uh, was, was deceived and became a transgressor. Okay, I want to remind you of the Bible Project uh, video that we looked at the very beginning of this teaching series. There's a screenshot from that video. There's really three options here. The first option is that people take this is that women should never lead or teach uh, in any situation in the church. The second option is that women can teach after they've been trained up, but there's still a precedent for male leadership in the church. And then the third option is that this is essentially only an issue at the church in Ephesus, and so it's only the Ephesian women. It's, it's not a lasting command. This is a local command. So really, that's the question is how are we to interpret this passage? Is it local? Is it only a local instruction? Or is there any kind of lasting implication for the church at large? This is the big scholarly disagreement. Some people say it's only local. Some people say it's lasting. Some people say it's a mixture of both. And I'm about to share how I read the passage. First of all, there is something going on in Ephesus. And we should not ignore that in order to read this passage well. In fact, I think it'll help us understand the passage well. We cannot reconstruct the exact situation of what's going on in Ephesus, but there is something going on with women in Ephesus. How do I know? Let's read First and Second Timothy. First Timothy chapter 5, verses 13 through 15. Besides that, they... This is these women, learn to be idlers, going from house to house, and not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies, saying what they should not. So I would have younger widows marry, bear children, manage their households, and give the adversary, the enemy, the devil, uh, no occasion for slander, for some have already strayed after Satan. So there's these younger widows, 
it seems like they're, they're going around, they're, they're saying things they shouldn't, they're learning things, they're, they're possibly even uh, being deceived by the false teachers, right? Teaching, false teaching is kind of the, the primary reason for First Timothy. Look at Second Timothy. Second Timothy chapter 3, verses 6 through 7. For among them, uh, this is some of the false teachers, are those who creep into households. This is like a cre- creepy language, by the way. Sneaking into households and capture weak women burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. So we don't know exactly what's happening, but possibly there's these false teachers who are finding a foothold in the homes of younger women, possibly even younger widows, and those are almost being manipulated by these false teachers and and they're actually spreading the false teaching throughout Ephesus. That's a little bit of a picture of the, the local command. I believe that that is very likely why Paul brings up this example of Eve being deceived by the devil, by the snake. Because Eve represents the Ephesian women, the false teachers represent the devil. And just as Eve fell for the lies of the enemy, these women are falling for the lies of uh, these false teachers. And so there's a call. So there is this call to learn. Let these women learn. And we can't miss this. You know, there's a, a posture of learning to learn with quietness and submission. Submission to who? Submission to the true elders. Submission to Timothy. Submission to those who are preaching the true gospel. So there is a call to submit to the male leaders of the church. But there is also, we don't want to miss the call to discipleship. Let them learn. Do you realize how culturally progressive that actually would have been in the first century? This, by the way, is something very similar to something Jesus consistently did allowing and encouraging female disciples, I would say if you're looking for a model to follow, follow the model of Mary. Look at Mary, the sister of Martha in Luke 10, verse 39. And she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet listening to his teaching. She's not interrupting Jesus' teaching. She's learning with that that quiet, that submissive, that I want to learn, I want to be a disciple. And so don't miss the powerful, that's the positive command, because there is a prohibition here as well. But the positive side of this command is let the women learn. There's a place for them in the church to be discipled. There's a place for you in God's kingdom. At the same time, there is this prohibition. I do not permit them to teach, women to teach, and I do not permit them to exercise authority over a man. The word for teacher is didasco. It's the normal word, the typical word for teach. It just means teach. It's just a a positive word for teach. Uh, It's used all throughout the New Testament, all throughout uh, the Bible. The word for exercise authority is tricky. It's the word authenteo, and it's only used here in the Bible, only one time. And scholars really, that's, that's a big point, just so we can acknowledge. So what does it mean to exercise authority? Some people have tried to say it's inherently negative, as in to domineer or usurp authority over a man. I actually tend not to read it that way, because these are two, these are two verbs linked by the same uh, conjunction, and teaching has no negative connotations to it. So it's not like, I do not permit women to teach heresy. It's like, well, obviously. You don't permit anyone to teach heresy. He says, I do not permit women to teach. That's just a positive activity. Neither do I permit them to exercise authority. I, I would take those both uh, as just, you know, just 
the actions as they are stated, not necessarily that there's an, an inherent negativity to that word. That's going to influence the way I uh, read the rest of this passage, by the way. That's why I mentioned that. A little bit of technical Greek there. Uh, however, we must ask the question, okay, so this is a prohibition about teaching, about exercising authority. Is there any lasting implication? We look at the local context of the Ephesian women. Okay, that makes sense for them. If there's a bunch of women in the church who are gossiping and spreading you know, the uh, false teachings, it makes sense for them not to teach. What about women teaching in the church today, women exercising authority over the church today? Well, here's the reality. If Paul had just ended it there, then there, there actually may be space for, for women to exercise authority over men, just from uh, 1 Timothy chapter 2. However, he links it to Genesis chapter 2. And Genesis chapter 2 is this creation narrative of God creating Adam and then God creating Eve out of Adam. That is about as timeless of a passage as you could look at. And then if you look at that and you look at just God's design and having gender, and I recognize we're talking about gender and there's two genders and it's Pride Month and I just recognize the tension culturally speaking about that. But biblically speaking, this is God's design for gender in Genesis 1.27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So this is page one of scripture, okay? Page one of scripture is there's two genders, male and female, and there is a design. This is why the title of today's message is Creative Design. Do you believe that God designed things for a purpose and for a reason? Do you believe that God knows best in how he created certain things? And, and many people would look at uh, Galatians chapter 3, verse 28, which says, in Christ there's neither male nor female. And they would say, what about Galatians chapter 3, verse 28? Well, this is not a sermon on Galatians 3, 28. I'm, I'm sure I will preach that passage at some point, but just a, brief, just a brief overview of that is if you were to read Galatians 3, verse 28, it has nothing to do with the Christian household. It has nothing to do with gender roles and, and, and really kind of deconstructing these social archetypes. What it has to do with is it has to do with the fact that in Christ, we're all co-heirs. We've all, obtained the, we've all obtained the promise of salvation. Those who've been baptized have put on Christ, and anyone in Christ, slave or free, Jew or Gentile, male or female, is equally a part of that promise. The living hope of heaven, forgiveness, reconciliation, redemption, all of the rest. Does that mean that men and women don't exist? It doesn't. And I heard a pastor this past week, uh, a pastor who was living in Portland, <laughs> and he said he was disagreeing with Jesus' teaching from, Matthew, from Mark chapter 10. Because Jesus cites Genesis 2 in his teaching on marriage and divorce. He says, well, before I get to the point about them being one, one flesh, let me first remind you that God created them male and female. Jesus believes that, okay? So you have it, this precedent about God's design for gender in Genesis. You have it reiterated, literally quoted by the Son of God himself in his teaching on marriage. And then I heard this pastor this past week say, well, Jesus just isn't recognizing that in Christ there is neither, there's no gender anymore. And I was like, you're saying Jesus doesn't know, doesn't know what it means to be in Christ? He is Christ! So, I mean, I'm getting a little passionate about this, but it's just don't use a one verse, actually not even a whole verse, a clause from one verse taken out of context to say that Jesus doesn't understand himself or that Jesus doesn't understand God's design for humanity. Okay. Soapbox over. Okay, read it. 
if you like read it, Mark chapter nine or read Matthew chapter 19, Jesus, he quotes, he doesn't have to. He can say, in the very beginning, God made two to become one flesh. But he actually says, before I get to that, I'm going to quote from Genesis 2, God made them first, male and female. Jesus believes in some kind of creative design from God. We have to also recognize that Paul's words, Paul wrote Galatians 3.28, does not undo Paul's other teachings when it comes to gender roles, specifically in the marriage. This is consistent to how we've taught uh, a godly marriage at Hill City Church. If you've been around for a while, this should be no surprise to you. But you can read more about male leadership in the marriage context from Ephesians 5, 22 to 23. I preached on that passage a few summers ago. Uh, you can read it in Colossians 3, verses 18 and 19. And you can also read 1 Corinthians chapter 11, 2 through 16. By the way, those are all about marriage, by the way. The Christian household where Paul very clearly uh, states that there, there, there's some kind of leadership role that the husband is meant to play in the Christian household. By the way, Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, that would be the one I would encourage you to study if you want to study on this, also cites Genesis chapter 2 as his reasoning for, for male headship in the household. All of that leading to the point that we have to remember this is not all women submitting to all men this is in a specific context, the context of prayer. How did our passage begin? In 1 Timothy 2, verse 8. I desire that in, what did I have everyone say? I desire that in every place. We might translate that, that as, I desire that people in all the churches. It's hard to get around that being a local command when he says, I desire that, that people in every place. Here's instructions for men in every place. Here's instructions for women in every place. Here's his instructions for the marriage household. There's male leadership. And we have to remember that the context of 1 Timothy, the primary reason, has to do with another kind of household, the household of God. 1 Timothy 3, 14 and 15. I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you might know how one ought to behave in the what? In the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. So you might say it like this. This is God's house, God makes the rules. And we believe that God knows best and God has designed there to be the, the church to be led by male elders. It's no surprise that the very next passage, which we'll go in next week, is a passage about eldership and the qualifications for eldership. I believe that what Paul is doing here at the end of 1 Timothy 2 is he's giving the theological groundwork for all male eldership. And next, in the very next chapter, he's gonna move on to the qualifications for those elders. And if you don't believe me, and if you don't believe Paul, just listen to John Stott, okay? <laughs> he's, uh, he, he's, he's got a little bit more street cred than I do. He says this, all attempts to get rid of Paul's teaching on headship on grounds that it is mistaken, confusing, culture-bound, or culture-specific. And I just wanna acknowledge, like, it is difficult, right? All of those attempts, though, must be pronounced unsuccessful. It remains stubbornly there. It is rooted in divine revelation, not human opinion, and in divine creation, not human culture. In essence, therefore, it must be preserved as having permanent and universal authority. And that's my position. That's the position of uh, Hill City Church. So what does that look like at our church, practically speaking? Well, at Hill City Church, we only have male elders. 
qualified men are people who are eligible to become elders at Hill City Church. Next week, I'm not going to build a case for all-male eldership because I've already done that today, okay? Next week, we're just going to get into, okay, not just any man can be an elder, qualified men. And next week, we're going to focus on what are those qualifications that we're looking, looking for when it comes to people to lead the church. At the same time, at Hill City Church, value women, and we believe that God uses women and that women can lead in God's kingdom. We believe that because although we have zero examples in the New Testament of a female elder, there, there are absolutely zero examples of that in the New Testament, there aren't examples of that in the early church, and it was actually officially decreed in the Council of Laodicea in 360 AD that there are not to be ordained female elders, okay? So we have church history, we have a precedent for this, as well as biblical teaching. There are many examples of women leading in the church, and women playing significant roles of leadership in the church. So let me just go through a few. Again, I'm not going to read them. You can, just, you can just read, jot these down, and take a look at these later. The first one is Phoebe. Uh, Phoebe is actually listed in Romans chapter 16 as a minister or a deacon, sometimes translated as a servant. It's all the same word, diakonos. Uh, we're going to look at some of those qualifications next week as well. But Phoebe is in some kind of ministry. Euodia and Syntyche in Philippians 4, although they are being reprimanded by Paul publicly in, in the Philippian letter, he also calls them co-laborers with him in the gospel. So you want to talk about, he's like, hey, they're equally helping out with the gospel. They're, lead, they're leading significantly there. You have Lois and Eunice. That's Timothy's. Need I remind you that Paul's writing to Timothy, and Paul or Timothy was primarily discipled by his grandmother Lois and his mom Eunice. You have Mary Magdalene in John 20, verse 18. Jesus could have, uh, on Resurrection Sunday, on Easter Sunday, Jesus could have appeared to anyone. He could have appeared to Peter. He could have appeared to John. But the very first person that Jesus Christ chose to appear to was to the group of women, specifically Mary Magdalene, who he tasked with being the first person to have the honor of sharing the good news of the resurrection on Easter Sunday. That's significant, right? That's significant. And then what I think is maybe the most compelling case for women still teaching even men is Acts chapter 18, verse 26. Priscilla and Aquila... Priscilla, the wife, and Aquila, the husband, approach Apollos, who's actually teaching a false gospel, and they instruct him further in the true gospel of Jesus Christ. So there you have a woman teaching a man, but she's not there by herself teaching a man. Who's she there with? She's there with her husband. And I think that is also significant in that text. And so what does that mean? For us, we are convinced that other than the office of elder, that I think that's, for me, very clear in scripture that the office of elder is reserved for uh, qualified men. At Hill City Church, everything else is pretty much fair game, right? We've had women lead in significant ways here. We have women pray on Sundays from stage, lead worship on Sundays from stage, give the benediction, share a communion thought for Lord's Supper. The only thing we have not had women do yet at Hill City Church is preach a sermon. And in a few weeks on July 2nd, I have invited Cheryl Clutter, one of our women's ministry leaders, to preach the sermon on July 2nd. And I'm super excited about that. Anyone else excited? Is anyone excited about that? Okay. And the, re the reason being is we believe that if the Spirit has gifted someone for the sake of ministry, 
It's up for, to the church leaders to give, to equip the saints for ministry and to give people an opportunity to do ministry. And Cheryl is coming uh, to, she's gonna be coming up here to preach in a few weeks under the authority of the eldership, the all-male eldership. And she's gonna be preaching not on her own authority, but uh, under the invitation of us. In Romans chapter 12, verses six through seven, Paul writes this, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, by the way, the ESV adds a masculine pronoun. It's absent from the Greek. It should just say, and the one who teaches in teaching. And so we're going to give an opportunity for Cheryl. She's going to be our first female preacher on Sunday at Hill City Church. And I hope that it's not the last time that that happens. And, uh, and we, we want to genuinely seek out more opportunities to empower men and women to identify their spiritual gifts and to use those gifts for the sake of ministry. So that's... It's going to look different at other churches. That's how it looks. That's what compliment, soft complementarianism or mild complementarianism looks at Hill City Church. We got one more verse, okay? We almost made it. First Timothy chapter 2. What were we going to end with? Does anyone remember? Anyone? I've lost you. I've... The gospel. We were going to end with the gospel. First Timothy 2.15. Yet... She will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Very puzzling passage. Just going to be honest about that. This last verse. And I don't have time to go through all the different interpretations of this last passage. I'll just give you my interpretation. You can choose to trust me or not on this. But I believe that this is what's called the proto-evangelium. The first gospel. Literally, there's some puzzling things about this. It says she will be saved. Weren't we just talking about they as in the women? Right, but now it's a it's a first person she, uh, or it's a, it's a, it's a it's a it's an individual pronoun, not a plural pronoun, and then it says through childbearing, it actually has a definite article there through the childbearing. So there seems to be one kind of child, like one specific event, and the thing that like seals the deal for me and how I interpret this passage is that the word sozo, which is the word for saved, is. Uh, used all throughout scripture, all throughout the pastoral epistles, and it always in the pastoral epistles uh, refers to redemption, the idea of being saved from our sins. So how in the world is a woman saved, you know, does that make sense? A woman who gives birth is saved, in, but not people who don't give birth, or not men aren't saved. Like, this is very puzzling. Here's what I think it's a reference to. Where was Paul just a, a moment ago? He was in Genesis, Okay, remember Genesis, remember the curse, remember God's promise even in the curse in Genesis 3.15. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring and he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This is a a prophetic word about Jesus the Messiah and I think this is a way of, uh, it's a strange way, it's a puzzling way, but it's a way of Paul saying that yes, Eve was deceived but Mary gave birth to the son of the living God. I want to show you a picture here at the end. Just to remember, we've been talking about women, their role in church history, their role in church leadership. Let's remember the role that godly women have played all along throughout redemption history. Eve kind of gets you know, a little bit called out here. You know, she was deceived. She was, she was created second. And yet there's a contrast between Eve and between Mary. And in the same way that the, the enemy came towards Eve in attempt to deceive her, that the angel Gabriel went to Mary to deliver her the good news. 
In the same way that there was rebellion in the heart of Eve, you know, the fruit looked good to her and she, she, she didn't believe God's promise was true. She didn't believe God's instructions. Mary heard the angel Gabriel's news and she said, I am the Lord's servant. Let it be done to me according to your word. And we have this beautiful example of Mary being selected by God to be used, as well as other great godly women all throughout redemption history. And this, this is a retelling of us, a reminder of us in the midst of, yeah, some difficult, some complex, this long you know, theological conversation to remember the gospel of Jesus Christ. That really the story is not about men or women, it's about the Son of God who came into our world to deliver us from sin who died on the cross for your sins and mine and rose back to life to offer us the resurrection and a new life and a living hope. So let's stand as we worship our God. Thanks for tuning in to the Hill City Church Podcast. You can find out more about our church at hillcityboise.org. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Hill City Boise. We hope this teaching has encouraged you and helps you follow Jesus with everything.